Well, it's good to be here with you today. Uh, this weekend on uh, Friday night, I went out uh, with um, my wife and two of my kids. We left one of them at home. Uh, we went out to Catalina Island, and uh, it was really great leaving one of them. It's a lot cheaper. And so, but uh, we had a, a good time, and yesterday we came back on the boat, and we were on the ferry, and um, we heard, we, you know, the smooth ride, everything was going well, and we get into Newport Harbor, and the everything's good, the weather's perfect, people are out on their boats waving to each other, and, and we hear the captain comes on on the intercom, and he says, um, I don't, never had this happen before, but there'll be a little delay, because a yacht ran into our dock, <laughs> And you just kind of think, oh, okay, that's odd. A yacht runs into the dock. And then immediately you start thinking like, well, how does a yacht run into this dock? But then how bad, like how hard did it hit it? And what does that mean for us in the dock? And as we kept going, uh, about 15 minutes later, he said, so I'm just going to slow down. And about 15 minutes later, he said, well, um, I don't know how to say this. This has never happened before. But um, the dock is now a crime scene. And so we're just going to hang out here for a while because I'll give you a tour of Newport Harbor. And, and now at that point, we're all sitting there and everyone's already crammed to the front of the ferry trying, you know, thinking they're going to get off. And, and now we're sitting there and you start thinking like, well, how long are we going to be out in this harbor? And he said, and um, the other thing is there's no other dock in Newport Harbor that will fit us. So now we're kind of looking and thinking, how long is it going to be a crime scene? What do they do with the boat? Is this boat smashed? Can they pull it back? Will it sink? I mean, what's going on here? And, and so everyone's kind of talking about it, trying to figure something out. And I'm, I'm sitting there with my kids and my nine-year-old, he's like, Dad, we could totally swim that. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> we could. And if they say we're going to be out here a couple hours, we just might, you know. And, and, then, and then he said, well, but look, there's, the lifeboats are up there on the front. He's like, I bet... If there's enough of us, we could get the lifeboats. And like, we're, they're not going to stop 600 people. I was like, that's a great point. So, so we start making all these extra plans for we're going to get off this boat. Because the last thing I wanted to hear is, well, we're going to have to go up to Long Beach and, and dock there, you know, or something like that. So we're already figuring out all the scenarios. And about 10 minutes later, he comes back on and just says, uh, I don't know how to say this, but everything's fine now. We're going to park. And... and and everyone erupts in applause. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the ride from Catalina back, but I don't know if anyone ever cheers for the captain when he says we're there. <laughs> but everyone get this big eruption of applause. And what I realized is, is because the drama was unfolding before us and no one really knew, and I think it was an applause of relief, like, okay, good, because I didn't want to swim. And, um, but the drama was unfolding and we didn't know the whole story. Now, if we got into Newport Harbor, and as soon as we got in, if he said, hey, you know, a yacht hit our dock, it became a crime scene, but wait 10 minutes and it'll be fine, we'll park, we're going to be a little bit late. And then if we went in and parked, nobody would say anything, no one would cheer, it would be fine. It would be just a normal day, a normal story. But because we were getting piece by piece, we then were caught up in, how is this, what's going to happen? Uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when I think of TV shows too, um, I don't know how many of you l need to know the ending, you know, if it's really a lot of drama. You want to know the ending or you like to let it unfold. There's different ways. Now, I'm, I'm married to a person, I'm not going to say who, but um, who, who 
has to know the ending. And so if she's watching a show or reading a book and it gets intense, she'll read the last chapter because she wants to know who lives, who dies, who gets married, what happens to Voldemort, you know, all those questions that might come up and she just has to know. Otherwise, it's not as enjoyable of a journey for her as the story's unfolding. Um, She's the type of person that Netflix is terrible for, right? The binge watchers are people like her. Like, I just have to know what happens. But even that, she watches the last episode and then we'll go through it. We made a commitment that we were going to watch Stranger Things together as a couple. And I came home one day and the look on her face, I knew <laughs> that she cheated. <laughs> and she knows how it ends and I don't. <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> so, but again, because as the story unfolds, sometimes it's when you don't know, it's just that much more unten- intense. And you feel it. Now this morning we're starting a story, or we're starting a a series in the book of Ezra. It's a book in the Bible, and no, it hasn't recently been added. It's been in there for a long time. And and so we're going to look through the book of Ezra, and the reason we're looking at this today is because Ezra is one of the books that's part of the storyline of Scripture, and we have the luxury of not waiting or not being unaware of the end of the story. But Ezra is a key piece of the story that God is telling and unfolding with his people, and it relates to you and to me today. And so as we pick up this book and we study kind of what might be an obscure book, some of you probably have never looked at it before, or maybe it's been a long time, you forget what it's about. But the reason we want to look at it, because it helps us understand the story of God and how he's interacted with his people from all time. And this story that, unlike the captain telling us piece by piece, We know how it ends, but we get to see where this fits in what God is doing. And there's no need to have to rush to the end to find the end of the story. This is just part of the chapter of what God's telling us. So that is what we're going to do today. We're going to open up to the book of Ezra. So I invite you to turn there. And since, again, it's a little obscure, it's in what we call the Old Testament, it's about a third of the way into the Bibles. Uh, If you're using a tablet or a phone, a lot easier, so you can just look up Ezra and find it there. Uh, We do love when you become acquainted with the books around it. Um, And today, also, we have bookmarks that came in your bulletin today. We have extra ones in the back. These bookmarks kind of tell you a little bit of the overview and some information to keep in mind as we study Ezra. And we also did this because that way you only have to find it once. And then it's there. Now you just put your marker in and and you're good to go for the rest of the, the series. So, which I thought was funny to me, but apparently just me. So, we will... Um, we're going to jump into the book of Ezra in just a moment. Pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you that um, unlike the story often that we live that is being unfolded and we don't know what will happen or what's around each corner, that you have um, revealed yourself in many ways and you've told us uh, your story of how you're interacting with human uh, and, and the purposes you have for us. And so I pray that even as we begin this new series, God, that it would be something that's all about you and you'd help this church be all about you just as we'll learn uh, you've asked your people to do in the book of Ezra. So we thank you and give you this time now. In your name, amen. All right, so the book of Ezra. Uh, Before we even jump into any of the text, I want to give you a little bit of background or overview of so you can understand where we're going with this series. First of all, the theme of the book of Ezra, just, 
I'm going to give you three words we can remember it and it will help us remember. It's providence, people, and purpose. And the book of Ezra is about God's providence over his people for his purposes. So God's providence, when we talk about that, it's providence is a divine being uh, caring for, providing for the spiritual and physical needs of people. So providence, so we see throughout this book how God interacts in the lives of people and supernaturally works with them. Now, who is it? His people, and we're going to talk a lot about who that includes, and we believe that includes us today. But so God, how he, his providence works in his people for his purposes. And the key here is to understand that this is about his purposes. And often we think that the story God's unveiling is for us and our purposes solely, but it's really about what God is up to and what the, how he's working. So remember that, that this whole book, as we get back to it week after week, is about his providence, his people, and his purposes. Now, why are we studying the book of Ezra? Well, in the same way that God interacts with his people in the time that we'll study during the book of Ezra, we believe that the same character of God exists today. If God doesn't change, then the way he interacts with people doesn't change, and his character doesn't change, and his purposes do not change. So as we study the book of Ezra, we're going to ask, what does that mean for our community today at Seacoast? What what are the implications for if this is what is important to God, what does that mean for us and what should be important to us? How do we believe that God is moving when we see him moving. So that's why we're studying Ezra. It's also a part of, the other reason is it's a part of what we call the biblical storyline. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, there's 11 books that tell the whole story of the Old Testament. And in those 11 books, all the other books are tucked in as kind of supporting documents. But there's 11 that tell you the timeline of the Old Testament. And Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, and uh, they've been split into two, but they can constitute the final chapter of the Old Testament, essentially. And it leads up to a period of time where we don't have much written. And and here's a timeline for you we'll look at. Um, But it leads up to a time that then paves the way for the New Testament or the birth of the Messiah. And one thing for us here that we believe, or one thing that's going to work for us, so we're going to study through the book of Ezra, and when we're done, it's going to take us all the way up to, believe it or not, to the Advent season or the month leading up to Christmas. So in 10 weeks, yes, it will already be the holiday season here. And, and so we're going to study this, and it's going to lead us right up to the period in history where the nation of Israel needed to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. So we want to study it to find how that fits, and we'll see throughout the study that it's significant that what happens in Ezra was necessary for the Messiah to be born and fulfill prophecy of being born in Bethlehem through the nation of Israel and all this. Without these events, that event could not occur. So it's a very important piece of the biblical timeline. So just really quickly, you can see here the the 11 books of Scripture, and I have this included in your outline. Um, These are the 11 books on the top that show you the narrative of the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis and creation, you have Exodus, so when the people were in Egypt and were let out of slavery, Numbers was wandering in the desert, and the nation of Israel then in the book of Joshua enters back into the promised land. And through the rest of that, we see the development of their nation as they establish a priesthood as they establish governance and they eventually have kings and they eventually have a divided kingdom even 
where there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So that's kind of where this fits. Then those, that divided kingdom, each of them are conquered. And in the book of Ezra, we see them start to rebuild. Now, I have to let you know this morning, just so you know, to get the full context now, I have to give you a little bit of history. And so sometimes I have to put on my nerdy Bible archaeology guy hat, and uh, that's what I'm going to do this morning, because to get it, we need to know why this timeline matters. And to set the stage for Ezra, we're going to give you a little bit of history, a little bit of archaeology. For those of you who like that, great. Those of you who don't, just smile and nod, and we'll get back to you in a moment. And... And we'll keep going. But so here's the biblical storyline. You see this. And when Ezra happens, it's the story of God's people who were scattered being brought back to reestablish his kingdom. Now, there's a few key things that happened in history that you can see on this line I want you to understand. In year 701, there's a king named Sennacherib, who I'm sure you already know this already, but uh, so who conquered the northern kingdom and took them into exile. Now, we even have evidence, now it's in the British Museum, but it was in Nineveh, of describing this battle and describing the conquering of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Scripture tells us that King Zennacherib could not conquer the southern kingdom or God miraculously intervened. In the archaeology that they found describing this battle, there's no mention of the southern kingdom at all. But the biblical account matches perfectly with what happened in the north which in the ancient world, you usually didn't tell the negative part of your history. So once again, archaeology affirms the stories we read in First and Second Kings about the fall of the northern kingdom. Now, during this time, there was a prophet named Jeremiah, and Jeremiah would be, uh, the, is a prophet in your Old Testament, and his writings would be somewhere between First and Second Kings, before what happens in Ezra, and he prophesies that soon the southern kingdom of Israel would fall. They'd fall in the hands of the Babylonians. And after that, after a period of 70 years, Babylon would be conquered and Israel would be reestablished. Jeremiah prophesied that. So we have in 586, in that year, the Babylonians fall to the Persian Empire that was rising at the time. And at that point, um, that's when Israel was able, first they were exiled and then the Persians allowed them to come back. We'll see in just a moment what happens here. So that's what takes us up to in history at that point. The Babylonians conquered the southern empire. The Israelites were taking, taken into, uh, into exile. And now they're established outside of their land. And also if you, for scripture, the book of Daniel, book of es- Esther, are not a part of the biblical storyline, but they fit in this time period of exile. That happens during this time. So let's get into the text and see what happens with all this history and how it fit, fits. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it into writing, saying this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you and all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So one thing we see here, the very beginning, establishes the history of what's happening. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And uh, so Cyrus was the king of Persia here. We actually have a depiction of Cyrus. There you are. So that's right, straight out of the movie 300. But um, so we have King Cyrus, who was on the throne, actually rose to power. This would not be his first year, but rose to power in about 550. And 586 is the year, the first year that he, the Persians overcame uh, the Babylonian Empire, and that fell into their hands. So in the first year that that happened, Cyrus issues a decree. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and sent the the Hebrew people back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a skeptic or you hear this about in Scripture, the question might come to mind is this sounds like a biblical historian, someone writing the Bible, trying to make it sound really good. Because why would any foreign ruler or foreign king send people back to their homeland to worship their own gods and establish their own, king or their own uh, priesthood again and build their temples? Why would anyone do that? So it seems suspect that would come from Cyrus. But we do have some evidence from archaeology that affirms this. This next picture here is uh, what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. Now, many of you, I'm sure you can read it well, um, and, and you, you don't need me to explain it, but this is a Cyrus Cylinder, and this is essentially the same wording that we just read. King Cyrus issues a decree to allow people to go back to their, anyone who is exiled by the Babylonians, they're allowed to return to their homes to reestablish their temples And he even says, bring back the the tools that were taken, all the temple um, instruments that were taken from your land. You can bring them back and reestablish the worship of your God in your land. Now, this cylinder is worded slightly different. It's actually almost word for word, except for it doesn't specifically call out Jerusalem and the God of Jerusalem. It's a generic saying, you may return to your land. Now, it stands to reason that when the Jews were allowed to return, that Cyrus gave them a specific decree or order from the king that says, you may go to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of Yahweh. Because this went to all the nation, but the Jews actually had their own that they would take. They needed something from the king to say, no, seriously, Cyrus said it. Here's, here's the evidence. But once again, we have archaeological evidence that supports the beginning of this book that tells us that God for some reason, Cyrus decided to issue this decree. Now notice this. It says, the writer here of Ezra, says that God stirred the heart of Cyrus. It doesn't say that Cyrus was worshiping Yahweh. It doesn't say that Cyrus had the same God as the Jews. It just says that for some reason, his heart was stirred and he decided to issue this decree. Now again, I already alluded to it, but let's think forward. If the, pe- the Jewish people weren't allowed to return to Jerusalem, where would the Messiah be born later on? There is no land. There is no prophecy to fulfill. There is no Bethlehem. There is no priesthood. There is nowhere to return or to be born as a Messiah. But this decree sets the stage 
for what God will break through and enter in once again in history. Some, for some reason, Cyrus felt compelled to allow people to go back. Now one, of course, it's a political move. Keep the people happy. Let them worship their God. At the end of his decree, he actually says, and when you get back there, also remember to pray to your God for me, <laughs> which is a good thing to do. While, while you're at it, pray for me. But also, that was out of practice from the, the norm in the ancient world. No one did this. But for some reason, he was stirred to do something different. Someone who didn't even know their God and sent them back. That's the first sign that we see in the book of Ezra of God's providence. God is working in the lives of people who may or may not know him, who may or may not believe in him, to establish what he wants to establish, to protect his own people for his own purpose. So this is our first sign of providence. Let's keep moving and look at this a little bit more and see God's people. Because there's another question for us to understand this study in the book of Ezra. We need to understand God's people. Who are, who's he referring to? And a bigger question is this. Why does God have a chosen people for himself? Why is that language in scripture? Because it seems kind of unfair if God has certain people that he has chosen to be his. So we're going to answer that. So who are God's people that we're looking at? Or first of all, why does God use a chosen people? First of all, we see this happen in Genesis chapter 12 when he first calls a guy named Abraham. He calls him out of the land of the Chaldeans. He saw something about Abraham's heart and he reveals himself to him and says, Abraham, through you, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great and all of the people of the earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to give you a land to possess and, and make you great. And so that be, Abraham became the father of the nations, became the father of the Jewish nation, of the Hebrew people. And so that's where that began. But then as God kept working with the descendants of Abraham and that nation, he called them a chosen people. Now one of the things we learn about God's people is right here. I have it on the screen for you in Exodus chapter 19. It says this. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we see here that God calls a people to himself to be what he describes as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Now what does that mean? The priests, that doesn't mean a kingdom where everyone who worked in the kingdom was a priest. Didn't mean that everyone who lived there was a priest in the sense of the ritual priesthood. It meant that priests were typically used for people who could help direct you and lead you to God. Priests were the ones who could intercede and point you in the direction of who God is. So saying you are a kingdom of priests, you are a holy nation, means you are established to help people to point them to the Creator God. So that was the purpose of his calling a people, a holy nation. He gives them a law and says, you're set apart because I want you to live differently than everyone else so that they may know who I am. So God's holy nation, his kingdom of priests, a few things to know. They were designed to preserve the law of God. Now God's law, by the way, is not designed to tell you to control you and to keep you from having any fun in the world. <laughs> That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is if we live it perfectly, which none of us do and none of us ever will, but if we all lived it perfectly, it creates shalom or it creates peace in your relationships with one another 
and with creation. And we're given a perfect representative of God and his ways, of his justice, yet his mercy, his compassion, his grace. All of those things, if we live them out, we point to God. So we preser- the chosen people or nation of priests were called to preserve the law. The other one is this, to bring praise and glory to God. Then as people lived his ways, the purpose of having the nation was that God could be lifted up, that he would receive praise from them as the creator. In the ancient world, all the gods created mankind. So in all the ancient civilizations, except for one, for the most part, gods created people to do their work so that they didn't have to do it. People gave sacrifices to their God because the gods were hungry and didn't want to get their own food. In the nation of Israel, God creates people out of love and they participate with him in his mission. It's not because God says, you work for me, you're my servant. He says, no, you're my people and you represent me, you live for me. It's a difference. Uh, The other thing about God's people, just so you know, why does he choose a people? It's this, to provide a nation through whom the Messiah can be born. And when you read the whole biblical narrative, it would not make sense to one day have a Messiah born to a nation if there was no established identity. You would have questions about, well, what's your credibility? Where'd you come from? Who's your bloodline? All of these things. But having a chosen nation means God needed a chosen nation through whom the Messiah would be born to fulfill those prophecies and to establish his order, because God is a God of order. Now, one thing, what does it not mean to have a people of God, to be God's chosen people? What does it not mean? It does not mean that they are better than everyone else, and everyone else doesn't count. It does not mean that. A couple of verses for those of you who like extra notes. Um, in Exodus 12, verse 48, and Exodus 22, verses 21, specific commands given to the people of Israel that say, you are to treat the foreigners and those who are not among you to treat them just as you would treat yourselves. You are not to make it different for those living in the land, whether they are Jewish or not, whether they are part of your nation or not, that you are to treat them with respect just as you would treat anyone else. You shall neither mistreat the stranger nor oppress him is one of the commands given to them. So by Having a chosen people, it does not mean that they're the only people who matter. So keep that in mind. Now, so that's a little bit of God's people when we look through the book of Ezra. A little bit how we see the providence shows up. And we're going to study all these in more in depth throughout the series. The last one is this, is God's purposes. What are God's purposes that we're going to see pop up? I have a verse for you here. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11. He says this, As a waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Now get this, that they might be for me a people, we talked about that, but for renown, for praise, for glory. But they did not listen. But God's purpose here was to make a people that they may make for praise and renown, another way of saying that these people may make my name known among the nations. God's purpose is that his people make his name known through their lives. It's in the purposes of God. 
I had a friend one time who told me he went to one of those movie premieres. A big Hollywood movie was filmed, and, and the premiere night was the one that the cast and crew got to attend. So if you've ever been around that, maybe you've been invited to one. But the whole cast and crew watches it, and they, they stay to the very end. They watch all the credits, everything. So he got to go to this, and he said when he was in line, there was someone in line with him who looked at him and said, Hey, um, hey I'm, in the, I'm in the movie. I'm one of the actors. He goes, Oh, really? He goes, Yeah. I'm one of the actors in this movie. He goes, that's, that's cool. And, and so they kind of talked a little bit in line, and they got in the theater and started watching the movie. And as the scene approached, the guy he met in line looked over at him and said, hey, it's coming up, my part. It's coming up. He thought, okay, cool, we'll see. And then his part comes up, and this, the camera's kind of going across the screen in this crowded bar scene, and it scans by this guy who's wearing a baseball hat and kind of sitting there, and it goes right by him, and that's it. And the guy goes, see, did you see me? I'm in the movie. I'm one of the actors. And he kind of looked at that like, no, I I think I missed it, you know. (laughs) I didn't see you. But often, many of us, we kind of think that life is like that for us, right? We think the movie's about us. We're the actor in the movie. We're the star. But the truth is, in the great scope of life, God is looking and we're some guy sitting with a baseball hat in a crowded bar and it just goes by. And that's it. Because the story that God's unfolding is about him. It's his story. And you're just a part of it. You're just the person in the crowded bar with a hat on. Now, here's the cool thing, though. Your name is in the credits. You are mentioned in the story because you still are a part of it. It's just not about you. That's the only thing a lot of us have to remember time and time again. Any of you with kids, you might have said that before. (laughs) This is not about you, which we say often. Why are we having this for dinner tonight? Because it's not about you. (laughs) I want them to know it's about me. So, all right. (laughs) When you have your own kids, it can be about you. But until then... (laughs) So, the story, God's purpose is that His name is made known by His people. That's what it's about. Uh, One more verse for you. In 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, here's the thing about God's people. We're told that in Jesus Christ, that we are grafted in to the nation means that those who are followers of Jesus are now included in God's people. That we are a part of God's chosen people. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says, you're part of this story for my purposes. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and following, I have it on the screen for you, or you can look in your Bibles. Tells us a little bit more about that. It says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, look at this. Why is he calling us? Why are we a part of his nation? So we may proclaim the excellencies of him, that we may point back to who God is, that we can tell people who this story is about. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And this word of the, the Gentiles here essentially is just meaning those who are, who are not followers, who maybe don't believe. Keep your behavior, behavior excellent among them, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So again, because of the way we live, the way we interact, how God has made us and called us to be, our lives point back to the Creator. The purposes of God are that He may be made known. The purposes of God are that He can be great. The purposes of God are that we may experience life that is from Him and not from ourselves. Because everywhere we turn, we find that our life that we try to experience on our own falls short. But we have a Savior now who gives us true life. And our purpose is pointing people back that way. One thing that we say here at Seacoast is this, is that we exist to help people experience the life of Christ and teach them to follow Him. We believe that as we learn to follow Jesus, the more and more we do that, that people, we bring life everywhere we go. People's marriages get stronger. Your interactions with your kids or your parents get stronger. The way you interact with your neighbors, your friends, your better boss, your better worker. Because the ways of Jesus bring life in all those ways. We're able to break addictions. We're able able to overcome shortcoming. We're able to find purpose in things other than all the list of things that always fall short. And when we live our lives for Christ, we keep pointing people towards God and they experience life. If we point them to ourselves, we're going to fall short eventually. That's why there's so many conflicts and struggles even in marriages because we're trying to be enough for the other person. Now we want to be our best for the other person, but we are going to fall short. And until we give up that idol of perfection, there's always going to be something that falls short. We're never going to be satisfied. But as we point people to the perfect creator who stands, who stood in our place, people experience life. God's purpose is that his creation experience life that comes from him and that he gets glory. And that's what the purpose is. So as we study the book of Ezra in the weeks to come, we're going to continue to see how God's providence works, how he works among his people and over and over again for his purposes. We're going to see him build a, a, a temple, build an altar, may not sound exciting, but the application we're going to keep going back to is what does this mean for our community today? To be a church that has God at the center. That's about Him. Worship of God is at the center. His presence is at the center. His purposes are at the center. We're going to see that time and time again throughout this study. We invite the worship team to make their way back up here as we end our time today. And as they come on up, we're we're actually going to sing a song that's new. We're going to introduce a new song to you. And the reason we're singing this song is because this song is, is somewhat of an anthem that we want to have for this series. It reminds us that this whole thing that we're asking God to do is saying, God, we want to be a church that's participating with you. We want to be a community of people that believes that you are working and you want to work and you want to bring life. So this song just rem- is a, really a prayer for us to say, God, in the name of Jesus, would you work through us? Would you transform us? And would you be light to the community? And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray and then introduce this song. And if you catch on, go ahead and join in and sing as we go. But let's pray and just make a commitment as a church at Seacoast.
God, we want to be the church, just like your people in the book of Ezra were used for your purposes. We want to be a church that's all about you and your purposes. So let's make this our prayer. God, we thank you for today. I thank you for the reminders in the book of Ezra that you are working and your providence, your hand is on your people. It's really on all people. And God, that it's for your purposes, for your name, for your glory. So would you continue to work and and God, with Seacoast Church, help us be a church that lives for your glory, for your purposes, to make your name great. And I pray that you continue to move uh, in this place and among us. We thank you now for this time.